One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounced on its point. Wow. The fakes, the gods are with the gods. When you get invited to a Senate inquiry about Nanny Gate, Au Pair Gate, why is inquiry with an I with an E? <laughs> That's the first question they ask. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Emma Race. I'm Lucy Race. I'm Nicole Hayes. And I'm Kate Sear. So what is it, an E or an I, Nick? I'm an, I'm an E girl, but it's really up to you. Are I'm, you serious? I inquire with an E, yeah. Yeah, it's my preference. But it's an inquiry, so it's with an no, I. No, actually, you're right, it's an I. <laughs> yeah. I before E, except after Bill. Bill. <laughs> Um, so that's an interesting thing to kick off your morning. I mean, it was by round. Nothing happened apart from the fact that Daisy Pierce is having twins and Gil's going to a Senate inquiry with yeah. an E or an I. Yeah, mm. that's kind of weird, week right? In footy. It's been a quiet time. Just another week in footy. So Gil is going to a Senate inquiry today. Um, he's been invited. He's not been um, seconded there for... Subpoenaed. Subpoenaed. <laughs> Ali McBeal in the house. Um, Maybe he has a bit of spare time. He's been seconded there forever. <laughs> It'd be surprising if he'd been seconded to the Senate, though. That would be... Is that uh, how we get our Prime Ministers now? Oh, yeah. Just second them. Oh, my God. Seem like there's a he better be careful there. that he doesn't walk out of there as the PM. Mm. He might. <laughs> so what's interesting is it's being reported that um, he and Jude Donnelly are both going from the AFL. Jude Donnelly works at the AFL. And it's funny because people often say um, sport... And politics shouldn't mix. And in fact, Jude Donnelly's <laughs> job at the AFL is to kind of um, mix them together. Yeah, is to mix them together is to make sure that um, that you know all the people in charge of the country and in charge of the state um, are kept abreast of um, what's happening at the AFL. And I guess it's how they lobby for extra money or extra. She's obviously done a very good job whatever. of late. She has. Had a lot. She. <laughs> she, Jude, yeah, she's a she. she. So they've been invited to go there. So it makes it sound like you didn't have to go. But it will be very interesting watching, I suppose. Mm. Mm. So let's wrap this well, podcast up quickly so <laughs> yeah. we can get home and watch the TV. I was going to say, as you know, I love a good uh, I love a good. Senate inquiry or a Senate committee. I did, of course, have the day off work when James Comey gave evidence in the United States, and I are I watched all five hours of following it. Following the Kavanaugh over thing, it, loved it, loved it. So that? I'll be watching that that this yep. afternoon. I'll probably have Kav- to. Are you watching the Kavanaugh thing? It. Yep. Yeah, I love that. And stuff. the other thing for people who don't um, have access to what it's like when Kate Sear is watching one is that you get a rolling feed um, <laughs> on <commentary>. Messenger, <laughs> and also you have the yellow yeah. legal pad out, don't you? And you take notes and sure popcorn, do. legally blonde. Yeah. yeah. So you'll yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll live tweet it this afternoon. Can't wait. I don't need to follow Twitter anymore. I just get texts from Kate. <laughs> yep. I know. I thought you called it once like a bespoke newsletter. That's what it was like. <laughs> My messages, messenger, tweets, direct messages on Twitter. But And you took offence, but I was actually I like, it's offense. the kindest thing that you do. It means I don't have to log on to Twitter at all. So the other massive news story from last week is that Daisy Pierce is pregnant and having twins. Now, I love women's football so much, I was a little nervous when she made the announcement that I was, in fact, the father. (laughs) I'm not, just FYI. Um, But it means that she won't be playing in AFLW Season 3. On a percentage base, how disappointed are you Mm. versus how happy you are for her? I I mean, the selfish side of me is like, oh, days. I'm happy for her, but she was my captain, so Mm. it's tempered. Mm. I'm wondering whether they'll have, you know, when they do out pregnancy. Yep. (laughs) I love it. Can't wait for it. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's actually very, very. It's beautiful news. Yeah, it's beautiful news. It's fantastic. 
um, story for her. And um, I, I hope that she comes back to you and plays football, whether or not she does, of course. Um, She'll come back better. For her, but... She's only 30. Mm. And in yeah. women's football, that's pretty young. Yeah. And I just feel like, I mean, you look at so many women who, and we're looking at Serena at the moment, mm. who pregnancy, it couldn't have happened to a better person mm. because... Daisy is an advocate for this game, mm-hmm. and as soon as she becomes a mum, there's going to be a pa- the power source from within that's just going to, you know, <laughs> take it all away. Speaking of tennis, can I do a shout out to John Millman, yes. who um, and Millmania hashtag Millmania, um, who beat Roger Federer yesterday um, Australian time in the U.S. Open. What was really uh, incredible about that was how gracious he was. When he won, it was a really hard-fought match, four-set match. Every set went, went really down to the wire. And um, he didn't celebrate at all, actually. He was very respectful to Federer and um, wasn't at all kind of demonstrative in his celebration, which surprised me but really impressed me too. Like, I, I think, you you know, if you, if you win, of course you, you can celebrate. But he really wanted to honour Federer in that moment. I think he felt really humbled that he had had the opportunity to play against him and beat him. It was it was beautiful, actually. And can I just do a little shout-out to his family? His, they clearly subscribe to our view of how you can do your bit when you're not yes. actually on court or on the field with somebody playing sports. So I heard his mother say that she and his sister don't watch the games and his mum doesn't even get score updates because she feels it might jinx him. Aww. So clearly <laughs> they played their part. They do yeah. their omen watch. Um, you know what else tempers a win against Federer? Is knowing that you have to play Novak Djokovic. That's <laughs> <laughs> I really don't so, That's fair. And another one. Best of luck. Okay, I have another um, little piece of news. This is something that was on Twitter and Instagram last night. It's from Sarah Perkins, um, current Hawthorne VFLW superstar and also current um, Adelaide Crows premiership player. She writes this. Tonight while coaching, a young girl says to me while I'm helping her with her kicking, just on the hush, you're the reason I started playing footy. It took me a second to respond, but I said, what What was it that made you want to play? And her response was, I saw you on TV. I was still unsure about what to respond, so I changed the subject and I asked her about her season. Driving home made me think, A, how much courage it took for this young girl to tell me this, and B, the courage that she's still showing by playing football. In the past two years, I've read and seen my fair share of positive and negative comments on women's football and even the comments people have made about me. But tonight, it made me realise that what I'm doing is worthwhile and that it's okay to be different and to be yourself. Even if she's the only girl that has the courage to get up off the couch, it's still worth it. If I could have had my time again, I'd tell this young girl that she's the reason I'm playing football. Beautiful. There's been a lot of conversation about women's bodies in the media. We've been talking about Serena Williams and what she's been wearing and um, whether or not she should stop breastfeeding. There's, of course, um, the trans policy has been released by the AFL and we will talk about that coming up in the podcast, but that also brings a lot of discussion about women's bodies. Um, I feel like there's something happening. There's also lots of discourse about Daisy Pearce and her right to have children. I couldn't even believe that Mm. there was haters on that topic. I could. (laughs) Yeah, see, Pollyanna over here. Um, But I do feel like that there's some real empowerment happening with women standing up and seeing that now that we've got this game, that there's that what's coming back at them, what's being um, reflected back at them from the kids mm. is actually changing the way people feel about themselves. Yep. Everyone's got the power to kind of feed back into each other's power, which mm. I think is a really beautiful thing that's happening. So we do happen to have some AFLM coming up this week. <laughs> I'm not nervous. You're nervous. Lucy? Well, we do. And look, apart from the actual football One of the highlights, I think, of finals time is the story. Is it going to be a classic underdog tale or will the favourite prevail? So what I did was I thought I'm going to have a look at week one of the finals and I'm going to make some predictions. So Richmond versus Hawthorne. Forget first versus fourth. This is actually a tale of two best mates pitted against each other. (laughs) Dimmer and Clarko are famously good friends. So how's this going to impact on Thursday night's game? To find out, we need look no further than the 2009 classic Bride Wars. 
When a, so a clerical error causes besties, played by Anne Hathaway and Kate Hudson, to have their wedding mm. scheduled at exactly the same time and exactly at the same venue, all hell breaks loose. All you need to know is that while one bride emerges kind of victorious, there is a sequel. <laughs> so on Friday night, Melbourne will take on Geelong. And while Geelong has been accustomed to playing finals, it's all a bit new for Melbourne. So you could kind of say they're a little bit like the new kid on the block, just like Daniel LaRusso was in Karate Kid. <laughs> Daniel, you'll remember, had to fight the more experienced Johnny from the Cobra oh, Kai Johnny. dojo. Cobra Kai. But like Daniel, I think Melbourne's going to find their own crane stance and steal victory. (laughs) Saturday afternoon, we see Sydney take on GWS. If there was ever a case of big brother versus little brother, this is it. And what better movie depiction of sibling rivalry is there than The Godfather Part (laughs) 2? Little brother Michael did not like being betrayed by big brother Frodo. (laughs) And look, I just say don't go near the harbour in a rowboat. Week one of the finals is going to finish with West Coast taking on Collingwood. To be honest, there hasn't been such an important clash between East and West since Rocky IV. (laughs) That makes Collingwood, Ivan Drago and West Coast, Rocky Balboa. So it's Rocky West Coast for mine. But remember, at the end of the fight, Rocky declares, If I can change (laughs) and you can change, then everybody can change. So we may not have seen the end of Collingwood. <laughs> oh, the worst Rocky Balboa ever, ever but ever. the best little piece of tipping. I can't believe it's a missed opportunity to yell at Adrian. <laughs> oh my gosh. Isn't that Stella? <laughs> Wrong movie, It'll be Jacinta, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, let's just, I don't know. True. So Just let's see if those predictions... <laughs> Oh, I love it. Lucille <laughs> and Some of your best work Some of there. your best work. Oh, she's really, really she's chuffed too. She said to me, I've got a little something planned and I'm pretty happy with myself. <laughs> <laughs> the serious firstborn has found her funny, <laughs> I think. Yeah. She's been working on it for a while. I'm very, I've never been so proud. <laughs> oh, thanks. It sounds patronising and I'm no, meaning it okay. too. It totally I'm really is. proud of you. Well done. All right, this week it's been released that there are going to be some rule changes that we're going to see in the very short term, Nicole Hayes. Yes, there's um, been some chats that are unsanctioned, it seems. Um, Nathan Buckley, his name keeps coming up, and in fact he fessed up quite early on that he had a little chat off the record with um, Tom Lynch. Actually, maybe it was on the record since he fessed up to it. Um, While Tom Lynch obviously was still contracted earlier in the year. Um, but since then, so he had a coffee with him, but since then, Damien Hardwick has also had dinner with Trent Con- Cotchen, <laughs> Alex Rance, Jack Rewalt, and Dustin Martin at Hardwick's house with, um, obviously with Lynch as the um, oh, star attraction. I thought you say with Mrs. Hardwick. Well, Mrs. Hardwick <laughs> might have been there as well. Since then, it's turned out... Jared Rapid had a little visit in the Gold Coast. We we don't really know what he was doing up there because technically, a cup well, of coffee, wasn't. I think, cup of coffee, yeah. going to Sea World, having some light and easy on up. the pirate ship. <laughs> <at SeaWorld. laughs> well, you know, it was wild. I was meant to be playing, so that's very interesting. But no, we we know he was injured, um, and but no explanation as to why. But he also had a little catch up uh, with Mr. Lynch. And so these are all the teams, obviously, that are still in contention, theoretically, uh, although the word in, on the street is that Richmond's uh, ahead of the game. But Mr McLaughlin, mm. Gil McLaughlin's not so pleased with um, the look. He's not, he doesn't think it's a good look for the, for the um, competition. <laughs> and he's considering, he's having a little chat with, um, everybody's having all these little conversations, with Steve Hocking, who might be the busiest person at the AFL right now. Mm. Uh, I mean... Senate inquiries, Senate inquiries um, notwithstanding. But um, he's looking at US-style anti-tampering rules that uh, the NBA and NBL have, which imposes these restrictions on anyone like general managers, coaches, um, front of house uh, staff from approaching players who are contracted or their management um, during their contracted time. Um, And they are serious. They have really full-on penalties. Like uh, teams have lost... Draft picks um, have been fined significant sums of money. So, you know, there's no – well, I guess we have to wait to hear what um, Mr Hocking has to say. But, yeah, this is really – it's not 
it's it looks like it's um going to happen. It's so dumb. I think it's so stupid. What did you think was going to happen when you had unrestricted free agency? Mm-hmm. It's stupid. My favorite thing's been watching people speculate that because Tom Lynch's partner has now started following a certain team oh, on no. Instagram. Yes, I saw that. Like, so people are actually watching who everyone follows on Instagram. Do you know what, Chan- what they should have done, what the AFL should have done? They should have made him The Bachelor and then <laughs> made a whole show around everyone oh, taking him gold, out for gold. coffees and light and easy and wet and wild. <laughs> and, you know, like I love seeing who it is that they put up as their best people to send. Of course we'd send Ruffy. Do I'd they, do anything Ruffy said. Do they give him a rose though? What would, they, what would be I the prize? Contract, I a contract, I suppose. A contract, yeah. Oh, that's the rolled winner. Rolled up. Yeah, rolled that's up. That's a little up. bow Contract. around it, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Does Osha have to be on the show? I think that's a rule. Like, they actually have, like, written that into the maybe rules. Maybe Steve Hawking. It's not busy enough. Um, I think it's ridiculous. You can't – I don't know how you can police that. Like, you've got so many other things to do, like changing the rules, like painting a bigger goal square. There, <laughs> are, so many, there are so many family like, members also who work in clubs and in teams, so does that mean that you can't have family dinner? Well, also too, like uh, the question of how you police it, if it, even if it's legal to to try and restrict people communicating with each other about these things, even if it were legal, how you police it is a different question. I just presume you get together and have like a soy latte or whatever and just have a coded chat where Be you like sort the of... Americans put yeah. a chalk mark on <laughs> the right. post box. I have it written I, I, in the top of your soy latte. But I just wonder, <laughs> from Nathan Buckley, who actually admitted to it, it makes me think about who is leaking all this information and I suspect it's probably the management. I mean, because it does kind of heighten um, yeah. the interest in him and make him more of a Fair enough. Know, yeah. in-demand player. So Player managers actually have so much power in this game. We rarely talk about them, but I recently heard a player manager um, kind of... Not sending a warning shot across the bow to one of his um, clients, but one of his clients had come out and said, yeah, well, why don't we just play 17 games? Why don't the girls play a full season? And then the player manager said, like, yeah, we'll enjoy that when I come around to your house and collect 20% of your salary because you're not playing the extra games. Mm. And I thought, well, I feel like that's really coded for, Mm. you know, shut your pie hole. We're on the gravy train here. Let's not give up anything for the women's game because I won't be able to build a new beach house. Unless they represent women as well, hello. Like you know, if they actually did you say conflict? Did you say conflict of interest? I I can't spell those words. How do you say that in Latin? (laughs) (laughs) Gatesia, expecto patronum. Nice, exactly. Patronum, patronus. Nicole, you were looking at at the fixture clash as well. Well, is anybody else a bit bothered by the fact that we have? on obviously the sellout game on Thursday night, which I'm still not committed to the idea of Thursday night football, but clearly that ship has sailed. Bin night in yeah, to quote right. Lucy Race. Um, I'm committed to it because it's over and done with quickly, like ripping off a band-aid. Done. Mm. That's I, just, like if you're like us our team's playing on Thursday night, mm. then I can just chill for the rest of the weekend. Well, I see your point, but that would happen no matter what day it was, like the next day it would be over. But um the the big question is, you know, it, it heightened by the fact that on Friday night we've got the Cats Demons game also at the G, and that's a near sellout now. I had a look at for tickets today, and it, there's only a couple of they're levels expecting left. ninety thousand. Yeah, they're expecting ninety thousand, but across the road, the NRL uh, is playing it. And did you know this is called the Melbourne Rectangular Stadium? Yes, because <laughs> I listen to the name. ABC. That's actually its name. So I think they need to work on branding. MRS, Mr. Yeah. S, for sure. It, I mean, it does have another name, a commercial name, but its actual name is Melbourne Rectangular Just Stadium. Just call it Mr. It's S. sexy as Mr. They should S. call it Fairy Light Stadium because you know how oh, it sparkles? Twinkle toes. Twinkle toes. Twinkle toes. Twinkle toes, the yeah. stadium. So you've got Melbourne Storm playing the Rabbitohs and they're on at the same time. Opposite, across the bridge from each other, and you know, just thinking about traffic and the train station. I love it. I mean, it. admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, they have staggered them. So the um, Melbourne Storm starts at seven forty, and the AFL starts at seven fifty. I'm not sure if that'll <laughs> quite make the difference that they're after, but like. What? thinking when there's literally no football at the MCG on the weekend? I think it's more a missed opportunity by um, the NRL to not put that game on the weekend when, you know, you would have had other people that might like to go along and support Melbourne Storm. There are a lot of uh, AFL Melbourne Storm players. Mm. But whose schedule came out first? Probably the NRL's, right? They probably booked Mm. it before and... I 
don't know. Because the AFL's schedule took everyone's by surprise. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and I also because we didn't took know everyone's breath away. It did that <laughs> too, <laughs> but also we didn't know who was going to finish in the top 8 because mm-hmm. it was so close. So, sport and politics, um as I mentioned at the top of the show, um has always been linked. This week we saw a really massive outpouring by Nike. Lou? Yes, so Colin Kaepernick has been probably the biggest story regarding the intersection of politics and sport and um, over the last few years, and that story just got a whole lot bigger. So Kaepernick is bringing a case at the moment accusing the NFL of conspiring to keep him out of the NFL, and last week an arbitrator decided to let that case go ahead. So that's going to be something to watch. On Labor Day, the big sportswear company, who um, also has a long-standing apparel deal with the NFL, launched their 30th anniversary of their Just Do It campaign, making Colin Kaepernick the face of it. The campaign features a number of athletes um, with inspiring personal slogans that also in some cases reference social issues. But the ad featuring Kaepernick is a close-up black and white photo of his face and it reads, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. It's so hard not to see this campaign as a massive statement of support. Mm. Like I think it just clearly is. Mm. Kaepernick's um, had a deal with this company since 2011 and it was due to expire soon. So, And they hadn't really used his image much re- uh, recently. Previously, they've stated that they support, and here's a quote, the athletes and their right to freedom of expression on issues that are of great importance to society. Predictably, when this all happened, it had a massive impact um, on social media, even on the stock exchange, like on the shares of of that particular company. Um, We've seen lots of support and lots of protest. Um, The protests have been kind of along the lines of, just a few categories. One is the old stick to sports. And all I'm going to say to that is, yeah, nah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other things people have said is that they're switching brands. Um, Although, you know, which of course is your right. Some of the brands people want to switch to are also owned by that particular company. There's been images of people burning or chopping up stuff with logos. And to those people, I'd say, I support your right to peaceful protest. (laughs) Um, there's been hashtag sarcasm (laughs) there's been a bit of the don't applaud this company because of their um, track record on other things like sweatshops and I think that's something that you really do need to take into consideration but I'd also say if you're being strong on one issue um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't you know be um, moved by that. I'm, I'm a fan of the the whole campaign. Um, it moves me, even while I understand that it's in a way commodifying activism and it's it's part of trying to get me to buy a particular brand. But the reason I like it is because symbols matter and visual support really means something. And we all have our ways of using our power. And I like that that's what they're doing here. I was um, moved by it too, Lou, and I was definitely moved by the concept of commodifying activism. And I took a little look. It's been on my mind for a while because, you know, when we buy a Futurist female T-shirt, I understand that that's people making money off a movement, and but I'm still proud to wear it. But I was looking back through a lot of other brands that have done similar things. Recently, Pepsi um, did a kind of tried to commodify activism, but it completely backfired because it wasn't something that they actually believed in. It wasn't actually something that that brand truly believed in. They weren't making a huge political statement. They were more putting Kendall Jenner in an environment and trying to <laughs> trying mm. to um, fabricate something that wasn't a real environment or a real setting. So if you don't, you can't stand for that. So I don't really, that's why they probably backtracked and why it really backfired on them because they didn't believe in anything. Um, Over the marriage equality debate in Australia, we saw Ben and Jerry's ice cream say that they weren't going to sell double scoops until marriage equality got passed. Um, And we saw like Qantas came out in Mm. support of marriage equality. And what I felt with those things is that they were willing to put their money where their mouth is. They're willing to use their megaphone to stand up for what they believe in. And what we know is that um, products like the one that we're talking about with the swoosh and the Just Do It campaign, they have a huge megaphone. This isn't hap- This isn't just happening by chance. This has been a really deep and thought about um, 
statement to make mm. and they're willing to lose because they're willing to win based on what they believe in. Now, this one is my absolute favourite. There's a card game called Cards Against Humanity, which I don't know if you are aware of. It's quite a hilarious game. Katesy is excellent at it if you ever get the <laughs> chance to play with her. Um, recently, they purchased a huge plot of land in Mexico where Donald Trump had proposed to build the border wall because they basically bought this huge plot of land so that the wall couldn't be built over this big plot of land (laughs) that they own. That's one other way where you put your money where your mouth is. And it was hilarious, um, but it was also really heartfelt Mm. and they really believed in it. So commodifying activism to make money is one thing. But I think what we're seeing here is commodifying activism knowing that you will lose money. I feel like that's where maybe the megaphone has a lot more power. I would argue that Nike's very aware they will not lose money. So the people, they're not, they're after the young market. So that the young market will see this in, in a very different way to those people cutting up their very old socks that they probably only buy every five years anyway. So Nike, I, I believe, is very aware that they're going to lose, uh, probably not going to lose in the long run and that this is actually a good look for them and does help them address some of their um, their kind of branding issues in the past to do with um, social issues. There's another part of this that's really interesting. There's this notion of ghetto-centrism and the essentialised black male athlete. That's uh, Glenn Hughes's um, language. And it's associated with how it traditionally used with the NBA but also applies to the NFL, how um, they have dealt with the dominance of black athletes literally on field but also in terms of how they promoted the game. Um, and so they symbolise um, the, the game in a much more prevalent way than, than what the white athletes do. I think in the NBA it's, it's a ridiculous, uh, like it's 80% black. But the idea is that they have tried to create an aesthetic that is, quote, making black men safe for white consumers in the interest of profit. The idea was to connect kind of the urban, the street, black male with these athletes, these incredible bodies, these aspirational people. I think th- this differs in many ways because, you know, we're, we're, it's more to do with the political rather than this street notion. Although when you think about the the origin of um, Kaepernick's decision, which is the Black Lives Matter question, that does sort of still come back to that. It harks back to that. There's a couple of ways of looking at it is is also it could be, you know, perceived as Nike subverting that idea. Another way of looking at it is they're capitalising on this idea of the of the black male not being from the street so much as this face of change. And so it's a really, I, I think, you know, I don't really know what's driving it. I suspect, though, that there is that expectation that there will be profit at the end of it. But I think it's a really interesting space where ultimately it is going to be a profit-making exercise and, you know, the how that is presented and how um, it unfolds for Kaepernick, who more than likely won't play football again. I mean, that is the expectation, despite the whatever the outcome. It's been two years and it's unlikely he will. Um, I do think it's a really interesting space and I think the you know, addition of Serena Williams and, and other athletes is really changing how this commodification works. Do you wish that we'd seen something like this with Adam Goods? Imagine. Imagine. Because I do see so much similarity and, and we get an mm. armchair view of what's happening in the States with mm. Kaepernick, but it is, if it had happened here and it was Adam Goods, we'd be having a very different conversation, well, I reckon, about... Isn't Adam Goods the face of David yeah, Jones? Yeah, he is David Jones. Mm. It's a bit different, I mm, It is. It's, it's nothing different. like the size no. of the brand. Kate, you probably have something to say about this. Well, I do, just a little bit. I mean, it's interesting. I was in Washington, D.C. in June um, for work and I went to a couple of the museums there, including a museum called Newseum, which I know a couple of you have been to, which is a, a museum that's about the history of news and news media. And there's a section on sport. Um, and Kaepernick featured in, in it actually quite prominently. And it was very... Um, it, it was it was a prominent display and it was quite interesting because there was an African-American family with some young kids and they were in at that section of the museum and the dad was explaining to the, or who I think is the dad, was explaining to the children who Kaepernick was and it was also situated within kind of a broader um, display about the history of black activism in sports, so Muhammad Ali and people like 
um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who are the guys who did the um, the power salute at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. So already Kaepernick is being recognised in museums and so on as having this important historic um, role, which I think is, is fantastic. Um, I just wanted to mention an article, actually, that touched upon some of this broader discussion. We'll tweet it out and put it on social media. It's really worth reading. Um, it's a long read, but it's fantastic. And it's by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who many of our listeners will know was a very famous um, basketball player. So he wrote a piece last week uh, about his relationship with sport and his reflections on race and sport. And he mentioned that last week, actually, not only was that um, lawsuit you mentioned, Lucy, not only did the arbitrator pave the way for that or clear the way for that lawsuit to proceed, um, but it also marked two years last week since Kaepernick started taking a knee. And so Kareem Abdul-Dabar wanted Uh, Jabbar wanted to write about that. And he traced the activism of multiple black athletes, including Kaepernick, but also, as I've mentioned, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Muhammad Ali. Um, And he also reminded us what it was that Kaepernick and others are speaking out for. And it was interesting because Jabbar made the point that the average length of an NFL career in the United States is 3.3 years. So it's actually nothing. And he's already been effectively not playing for two the average length of an NBA career is 4.8 years. Um, And so he made the point that, you know, it was even more remarkable that Kaepernick and others are prepared to protest given that the career is relatively short, actually. Um, he And I just want to read a couple of quotes, if I can, from the article. He quotes Muhammad Ali, who once said, when you see me in the boxing ring fighting, it wasn't just so I could beat my opponent. My fighting had a purpose. I had to be successful in order to get people to listen to the things I had to say. And um, Jabbar ends with this really fascinating discussion of what sport means to him and activism in sport and why it's so important. And if I you just indulge me, I just want to read the last paragraph because it's um I think it sums up everything and it aligns not just with what Kaepernick's doing, but what that advertisement has tried to capture about Kaepernick's spirit. So Jabbar writes, sport energises me and makes me hopeful about humanity. But I am even more energised and hopeful when I see those same athletes speak out against injustices, because I know that in doing so, they are risking the careers that they spent their whole lives working towards. Their willingness to risk everything in order to give voice to the powerless, despite all efforts to silence them, makes me proud as an athlete and as an American. As Mark Twain once said, true patriotism, the only rational patriotism, is loyalty to the nation all the time, loyalty to the government when it deserves it. Athletes who speak out are proclaiming their loyalty to a constitution that demands equality and inclusiveness, not to the government officials who try to undermine those ideals by silencing its critics. It's so interesting thinking about how we've been talking about bodies a bit and just I actually was thinking about Daisy Pierce as well in that moment, the fact that she's pregnant, um, that when you try, when people try to shut you down mm. and we know that African-American um, men and women, in uh, especially in a sporting setting, have they've been tr- people have tried to shut them down. The same thing happens here with Indigenous athletes. People try to shut them down and make them more act more white. We've even mm. had that famous quote um, from from the former Collingwood president. And and the same with women. We see women's bodies being used um, against them to shut them down, to silence them, to to corral them into mm. the way that that the administration or you know whoever it is at the top society yeah. thinks that they should be. And all these people are using their bodies in the way that they can to make their statements. It's actually pretty empowering and amazing. Which brings me to the AFL's gender diversity policy, which was released last week, Katesia. Yeah, it was. It's been long awaited, this um, policy. And so we wanted to have a bit of a chat about it because um, it's going to impact upon uh, a number of people in the community. And um, I have some concerns about the the way that the policy might play out. So um, essentially, I'll just tell you a little bit of background. 
at the start of the, there's a sort of long document that the AFL has released that says essentially that the policy is intended to apply to trans and non-binary people who wish to participate in the AFL. A little um, notation there that it doesn't apply to intersex people. The AFL have indicated that they're going to develop a separate policy on that down the track. Um and the AFL says quite clearly up front that the purpose of the policy is to try and um, foster inclusion and participation in sport, um, but also to do so in a way that is fair. And we're going to have a, a conversation about that in a moment. Um, but essentially what the policy says is that if you are a non-binary or trans person, you can apply to play AFL and you have to meet sort of two overarching requirements. The first one is that you have to have and it's a bit tech. We're going to get into some technical detail here, so try- I'll try and explain it as best I can. But the first is that you have to have a sustained level of testosterone under a particular threshold, which is five nanomoles per liter of blood. That's sort of a testosterone level, and you have to have that for at least twenty-four months. And then the second um, criteria is that you have to provide some data on a range of measures, including height, weight vertical jump, your two-kilometre run time and a whole bunch of other things, you know, bench pressing and the like. Um, And that information is then going to be assessed by an AFL subcommittee and the the policy says that the committee can refuse an application if there is, and I'll quote here, a relevant and significant disparity in the applicant's strength, stamina or physique when compared to data procured from cisgender AFLW players in the preceding two AFLW seasons, which may reasonably be regarded to give rise to an unreasonable competitive advantage. Um, And I must say that I've read the policy a couple of times and I'm actually unsure about how it will work because it seems to be that you have to collect all of these data, put them to the AFL, they'll compare it in some some way to cisgender women and decide whether or not you get to play. But I don't know how, like, does it what if you're really tall? What if you're really slim? Do they compare it to uh, someone of equal I don't, position? I'm not on the really ground? sure. Like it, it uses it says it, the policy says that it will be you'll be um, compared on the basis of mean, medium, mm, okay, average, you know, average weight. Uh, so, but how it is all thrown in together into the mix is totally unclear to me. Yeah, mm. and the query of that is um, is the the source is that from players who've come through academies or is that from the vast majority of people who play AFLW or is it from VFLW? No, the the policy says the preceding two AFLW seasons. So have they tested all of the cisgender women who play AFLW and that's their... I don't know. I don't know if if those data are from the entire AFLW competition. All cisgender women averaged out. I'm not. I'm not sure. Those things. That kind of detail isn't really explained um, clearly. And I think that's one of the issues with the policy that there is kind of a lack of transparency and and clarity for me about actually what it means, how it will actually play out. Um, But I just wanted to highlight what I think are some of the important implications of the policy or some of the concerns that I have about about how it will actually really impact upon people and also some of the potentially perverse or unintended consequences um, and peculiarities that might be thrown up from the policy. Um, So it seems to me on the one hand that it might be possible, for example, that a trans woman might have all the same attributes and skills, so might be the same height, weight, speed, etc., um, as a cisgender woman, but that she could be excluded from playing if her testosterone is over that threshold. So she's exactly the same in every other respect in terms of her physical prowess, but if for some reason she were over that threshold, in theory she would be excluded. Um, it also means that, and I'm, this is going to be sound, sound a bit crude, but f- you know, for want of a better way of putting it, somebody who's a complete underachiever, so who's in the bottom few percentage p- percent of competitors in the competition, could also be excluded if her testosterone is too high. But she's otherwise, you know, essentially not a very, you know, she's not very good at football and so on. And what I think is most important about this is I want to say a little bit about the emphasis on testosterone. Um, And I've explained this, I've talked a little bit about this on the pod before. Um, So the first thing to say is that the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission warns against focusing on testosterone alone. And the AFL hasn't done this here. They do have these two bunches of criteria. But the commission makes the point that sporting ability is about more than hormones. 
And on the face of it, the AFL policy seems to acknowledge that. Um because it says on the one hand, testosterone is not everything and it looks to these other measures like height and speed and strength. But then it seems to be saying that testosterone testosterone sort of is everything because if your levels are excessive, in inverted commas, or too high, even if you're not all that fast or all that skilled as a footballer, you'll still be excluded. So um, there's a kind of paradox there about testosterone, and that doesn't surprise me in a way because we really do focus as a society on testosterone as somehow this magical um, uh, magical hormone that somehow is responsible for... Um, superpowers. Superpowers. Mm. Um, I just wanted to run through just a few quick dot points if I can too about other things that I think are really problematic with the policy Um, and I'll just rush over them very quickly because there's so many that we could highlight but I mean the first one is that I think there are really serious ongoing human rights concerns about the requirement to um, to undergo invasive or detailed um, extensive medical treatment and scrutiny in order to be able to play I think that's hugely problematic especially for people in a lived um, sense in a kind of personal sense, um, the impact on people. Um, the other thing to say is that I'm really puzzled by the emphasis on five nanomoles as the threshold. And I'm not a scientist, so I, there's a lot of science on this, and I know it's very complex and very nuanced. But let me just tell you a couple of things that are important from the literature. Um, Previous research has shown that cisgender men can have quite low levels of testosterone, including well under that five nanomole per litre threshold. And some cisgender women naturally have testosterone levels that are much higher than the five nanomole threshold. So there's a well-known 2014 study that looked at 693 elite athletes and looked at their testosterone levels. And what it found is that there is huge variation among men and women. Um, There were 239 women in that study and 11 11 of them had a testosterone level above 8 and three of them had values that were between 25 and 35. But the assumption in this study is that women, in inverted commas, need to come under 5 And in that same study, some men had testosterone levels of one or two nanomoles per litre. And the point that the authors made in that study is that all of these people were elite athletes who were competing at the peak of their sport, including men who had testosterone of just one nanomole per litre. So the idea that somehow you have to have less than five because anything above five is an unfair advantage just doesn't match up with the science. And... um, this variation is really important for a range of reasons, including because you have a if you have this obligation to get your testosterone down under five, you might be coming off a very high bar and then having to have a testosterone level which is lower than cisgender women who have an endogenous or natural testosterone level above five. So um, I think that's very, very crazy. Um, I think the final thing I want to say, which is, where it becomes most intriguing, this emphasis on testosterone in the policy, is that there's a little section right at the back of the policy that says that this gender diversity policy is also applicable to people who transition not from male to female but from female to male. And there's only a little section about how those people might be eligible because the vast majority of the policy really focuses on trans women. And what that policy says essentially is that if you are if you have transitioned from female to male, you don't have to jump through the same hoops. And the policy says, and I'll quote, the AFL does not consider that there is the potential for relevant competitive advantage for this population over cisgendered players. My query, Kate, is I believe that the AFL is acting in um, a way they want they want to get this policy up and running. They want to have an answer for this. I really do believe that. My query is whether this um, policy is promoting inclusion or promoting exclusion, and that's my concern because you've raised a lot of issues. And I think part of it is that the AFL believes this is a stepping stone to where they will eventually end up. This is the first part of this story, I think, that's, you know, been made, it's formalised. Um, for those um, of you who have been following the story of Hannah Mouncey, um, 
a little update on her story because this, of course, does affect her. She has a law firm who have taken on her case pro bono and she will um, be speaking to the AFL. The AFL received a letter two weeks ago saying that they had until midday tomorrow, which is um, Thursday, Thursday, Hawthorne v Richmond Day. (laughs) Um, So they have until midday that day um, to tell her whether or not she is eligible to um, put her name in for the draft um, or else it will be going to VCAT. Hannah feels confident that her testosterone and physical testing will come under what they want. Her concern is that um, weight will be a sticking point for the AFL. And she this week did address the issue of um, making weight an issue for mm. female players. Nicole? She did. She wrote a piece in The, in the Guardian um, pointing to the reality that body weight of trans women is being used as one of the physical measures that might result in their exclusion from the game. Um, and she's concerned to, about several things, but one, that ongoing policing of the female body and the way that we continue to be told what we should look like, but also the, the message that that is sending, particularly to girls and women or young girls um, and teenagers, trans or cis gender, that there is an ideal female body shape um, and that size, there is such a notion as being too big. Um, and I just think that's another side point that's really worth um, considering. So you should check out her article in The Guardian. Well, we decided to have a much longer discussion about this uh, with an academic who specialises in this these issues. So I sat down with Dr J.R. Latham, Dr. Latham is an honorary fellow in cultural studies at the University of Melbourne and an expert on transgender health and medicine and its social implications. Here's our chat. When we saw the policy come out from the AFL this week, one of the reasons given for the the need for a separate standalone gender diversity policy is that there's a need to be fair in competitive sport. Um, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about fairness in that yeah, I think it's pretty key to um, reframe, frankly, what we think of as fairness in sport. Um, I think people tend to think of this problem in particular as how can we stop people with male bodies or men playing with women. And that there's actually a lot more fair ways of thinking about these problems. And I think that if you've played sport um, of any level, you realise just how unfair sport is, that it is about, you know, harnessing capacities that you have or don't have. And, of course, an awful lot of training goes into being an elite or prof- and or professional athlete. The fairness that we might want to strive for is how can we do the best job of including these people who have been exceptionally marginalised in these other places. I want to ask you a little bit about about sort of some of the requirements that the AFL has announced that it wants to include in this policy. So there's sort of two sets of requirements. The, the first one is that people who apply to play have to show that they have testosterone levels at um, five nanomoles per litre of blood for at least 24 months before they apply. And then the second one is, and this is the one that's a bit confusing to me actually, that they have to provide then some data on other measures. So the, their height, um, details of their height, their weight, their run time over two kilometres, their sprint time over 20 metres and then a whole bunch of other variables as well. Can you just tell me a little bit about from your point of view and based on some of the research that you've done, your reflections on what it's like for trans people to be subject to this kind of medical scrutiny? Yeah, sure. Look, I can't talk too much about that specific stuff about testosterone except to say that it is ludicrous. And it's ludicrous because all people are different from each other. And so to compare, you know, trans people's data to non-trans people's data just doesn't make sense, even though it appears to be extremely obvious that that is the right thing to do. People don't perform well or not so well based on their testosterone levels. But to talk more about things I do know a lot more about, um, which is the kind of medical surveillance and public surveillance that trans people are under um, constantly, 
is, yeah, I mean, especially a requirement like 24 months, I mean, that's two years of someone's life that, you know, you're saying you need to wait or you need to be monitored, um, which for, you know, a sporting career is a, it tends to be an extremely brief period of time. But I think as well what, and this comes back to what I was saying around fairness as well, is that what trans people go through in order to access medical interventions, so to access hormones or to access surgeries, um, is an extremely long and arduous process. Um, it tends to be expensive, um, not only in financial cost, but in, you know, emotional energy, um, people lose their jobs, and there's an awful lot of barriers that one has to overcome and to prove yourself in particular ways. And yeah, some of what I've written about in my own work talks about what the effects of going through those processes are for people's self-esteem, I guess you'd put it. So how do people feel good about themselves when they've gone through a process in which they've had to articulate their own experience of their bodies through the paradigm of suffering? So when you need to say, I hate my body, that's why I want these hormones, then that has longer term effects for how people feel about themselves. And I know, Joe, you mentioned that you've, you've written a bit about this or a lot about this actually in your own work about what it is that psychiatric medicine in particular demands of trans people that they kind of, um, that they participate in going through a process of being diagnosed with some kind of, in inverted commas, a sort of psychiatric condition or problem in order to be eligible for treatment and support. And, and in that sense, you know, I think when we look at the AFL policy and what it requires of people, that it requires people to demonstrate testosterone levels of, at a certain threshold or under a certain threshold for two years, there's there's likely to be a longer history of medical um, surveillance, as you say, and sort of psychiatric intervention in particular before that. So trans people who might apply to come and play in the AFL presumably will have spent, you know, some years, yeah, uh, in, involved in or engaged with medicine and being surveilled by, by doctors um, before they can even consider playing is that is that fair to say yeah absolutely i would think so when people do want to medically transition to obtain hormones or surgeries they do need to have a psychiatric diagnosis that's how the medical framework works in australia at the moment and in a lot of other places as well and that diagnosis is saying that the way you feel about yourself is a mental disorder that's what that diagnosis does mm -hmm. I noticed that at the start of the AFL policy, it, it has some overarching statements about the purpose of the policy, and I just want to read a couple of them to you and just just get your reflections on them. So the policy emphasises that people should have an equal opportunity to participate in sport, and then it also says that people should have an equal opportunity to be competitive and to win. And I wonder if, uh, you know, you were talking earlier about about inclusion and fairness for what is a, a very marginalised population of people. Um, I wonder how you reflect on those principles that underline the AFL policy, this emphasis on the equal opportunity to be competitive and to win. How important do you think that is or should be? Yeah, I think I'll start by saying, you know, that I think it's clear from their policy that they're not interested in equal participation. That's evident from the policy itself. But I think in terms of competitiveness, there's all kinds of different ways in which competitiveness appears in sport. And, um, and the idea that people need to have the same, you know, hormone levels in their body or the same height. I mean, these are not the ways that we understand competitiveness in sport. We like people who are tall in basketball and in football. So then why are we telling someone who is tall that she is too tall to play football? You know, trans people, you know, we are people who are excluded from extraordinary numbers of places, institutions, relationships with people. And so to have places where trans people can be included is extremely important. The need and the feeling of being included is something taken away from trans people in all kinds of areas of our lives. And 
I know that you've done research as well, not just on the experiences of trans people of different ages, but also older trans people in healthcare settings and um, aged care facilities and so on. What do we know from that literature about the impact of these processes of exclusion and marginalisation across the lifespan of of this community? Yeah, well, we know that they have detrimental effects. Um, you know, social isolation is a problem for older people and it's especially a problem for older trans and queer people. But it's also the case, I mean, in my ageing research that I did with older trans people, that the experiences of going through these sort of intrusive psychiatric scrutiny and other kinds of intrusive medical practices produce in people a desire not to go to the doctor, not to go to all kinds of other, not only health services, but other kinds of services. Um, and so I think thinking about the effects that exclusion has on people is really important. And sport is such an opportunity to include people. Um, and when, you know, and th this opportunity is being taken away from us. In awfully sad news last week, an SANFL female player who is being remembered as someone with an infectious smile and a kind nature died in what was an accident um, head clash with another teammate. And we have been so broken by this story because it's just an absolute tragedy and an accident and um, we just wanted to send our love to the family of the player and of course to the teammates. Um, the story of um, this accidental death has been so horrific in so many ways but it will be a story that we see played out um, across this weekend because the player um, was the sister of someone who has a high profile that plays for the Collingwood AFL M team. And in not using her name, we um, are basically respecting the protocols of her culture. What has been a challenge in wanting to pay respect to this player is that in a lot of ways she has been referred to as the sister of Travis Varco, who is the player for Collingwood. And in no way do we want to only remember someone as um, the sister of someone, but of course we're trying to um, respect the protocols of her culture. So you may have been feeling the same way and we just wanted to acknowledge that it's a, that it has been a challenge for us um, to get that right and we, we hope that we have done that. Um, but it has challenged our feminism to only remember her by signposting her as the sister of um, a famous AFL M player. But we also respect that he will be playing um, this weekend's game under really challenging circumstances. Yeah, and of course... Um I echo all of that, Em, and we wish him well. Um, there was a lovely tweet that I saw sent out a few days ago by Sam Jacobs, who plays for Adelaide, and um, I'll just read that. Sam said, A year to the day I lost my brother, I hear the sad story of Trav Varco's sister. The situation feels too similar. Sending love and prayers to Trav and family, the industry will wrap their arms around his family now, and um, and I think and hope that's right, and, um, you know, he's in a, a good place with Collingwood no doubt and um yeah we just wish him well for the for the game this weekend and for the whole family who must be feeling very torn in so many ways um and of course you know when I've been listening to this story and following it you know that the uh, the challenges are compounded in many ways because there is that tendency to for a person's life to be dwarfed by um you know, the celebrity of a sibling or a family member. And, and again, this is the sort of thing that continues to challenge us in remembering this footballer. Um, but, yeah, I guess that's the main thing is that we, we can't let this pass without reference to the family and to this enormous loss that the entire football community is experiencing. Okay, final business. There are some games on this weekend, but has anyone else got any final business, Nicole? <laughs> There's a, a new edition of the Footy Almanac, which everyone would be very familiar with. Uh, they've got some great um, books out now, but uh, 
the latest is the Women's Footy Almanac, edited by Casey Simons and Yvette Roby. It's the AFLW season one game at a time, and that's available for pre-order right now. I think it's just been launched, so get into it. There's also a new radio show on the airs. Uh, on the airs. <laughs> on the airs with hairs. It's ours. Chin hairs. Chin hairs. We were on Saturday last week. We're on Sunday this week. Um, we'll be tweeting and Facebooking and all that business. I was nervous. Going live's yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. You have to um, really think. Yeah. We need <laughs> I like to what we do when we do the pod. Bring our brain game. <laughs> anyway, we're on again this week and we're going to Melee um, Sanctum style this week. And we've got some interesting guests lined up. So, um, stay tuned to our socials for all those details. Can I just also say thank you to everyone who gets in touch with us via all of our different social media platforms. So we are on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. The thing that we love is hearing from you guys because it actually makes this a proper conversation. Otherwise, we're just talking at you mm-hmm. and that's not as fun. So I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who takes part in those conversations because it actually helps grow this community of like-minded footy fans and that's really valuable. And we saw that come to fruition on the weekend when some people who have met via the podcast um, went to the AFL wheelchair grand final and met up together and went and it warmed the cockles of our heart (laughs) and we have to say thank you for doing that because it really takes this next level. Congratulations to Collingwood, of course, who beat Richmond in the first ever wheelchair AFL grand final. In what could be an omen for the... AFLM, hey? Absolutely (laughs) could be. All right, we did miss an opportunity last week to say no footy. footy. (laughs) No footy. Now it's final, so what are we going to say? Can the footy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us this weekend. Can the footy. footy. Hi everyone, my name's Ollie and I am the producer of The Outer Sanctum. Now, as a little bonus feature, I thought I would include today a conversation I heard the ladies having just before we recorded the podcast where they saw someone walking around the office who looked a little bit like Chris Scott or Brad Scott, whichever you like. Did you think that was Boomer Harvey? No, out of the corner of my eye, I thought it was... um... Brad Scott. It was either Brad Scott or Chris Scott. It's yeah, not tell from the it wasn't Brad, it was Chris. I just saw, I just saw the North Melbourne looking top and the brown hair. When thought, you say oh. Brad or Chris Scott, do you go Chris Katz? Cats. That's exactly it. what I do. Me That's, too. Yeah. Did you it see takes I me five minutes I think to work it out. <laughs>